In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So what is the big picture? Uh, the division of the book of Revelation is as follows. The, the first chapter we saw was the vision on earth. Uh, then the next two chapters, two and three, we saw the seven churches and God's message to the seven churches here on earth. Then chapter 4, we started by St. John being taken up to heaven and seeing the throne, chapter 4, and then chapter 5, the whole story about this the scroll or the sealed book. And then after that, we find the seven seals, and after the seven seals, with, you know, the seven trumpets, after the seven trumpets, the seven bowls, and then the end, and then heavenly Jerusalem. Some people see the seven churches as covering the timeline from the time of Christ until the end. And then they see that the seven seals, they cover the majority of time, and then when it comes to the seventh seal, it sort of opens up, and then comes the seven trumpets and seven bowls before the end of the world. So that's sort of, you know, where we are in the big picture. The more we're going to get by, the more we're going to add more events, like the seven, the seven seals. They're not all the same. The seven churches were all the same thing, all the same story. There was this very specific pattern that we recognized that, you know, Christ is speaking to the church, identifying what the church problem is. First, he tells them what are the good things, what the problem, what the remedy, what the reward, and so on. The seals are not the same. The first four seals are the first horsemen, you know, and then the fifth seal is the altar, sixth seal is different, and the seventh becomes a completely different story. So, the more we get closer, the more we're going to try to add more details to this. So, you're going to have like you know, a timeline for Revelation and a couple of uh, slides. Alright. Let's go back to where we are. Uh, oops. Do 22. So, in chapter 4, let's, let's read quickly until, chap- until verse 6. Can somebody volunteer to read to us? Do you have a volunteer? Okay. You're saved. Yes, please. So this is a vision, as I said, for the vision of chapter 1 was on earth. And if we go back to chapter 1, we see Saint, when St. John saw Christ, he saw him um, in a very 
glorious way, but he was able to describe him uh, as, you know, his face uh, like the the sun and his tongue and, you know, like a sword, double-edged sword, and his eyes like a flame of fire uh, and so on. Now, when St. John was taking up to heaven and he was, he was told, come up here and I'll show you what must occur, he tried to describe Christ and he said, and one sat upon the throne. And we talked last time about, you know, what is the meaning of these stones. Let me just go quickly over the comparison of what the throne looked like to different prophets. Okay. The first vision of the throne we find in Ezekiel. Uh, the, the importance, you know, some things we're going to compare where this was seen, whether it was seen from earth or in heaven, what are the different attributes or what are the things that the prophet described in whatever they were writing. So if you go to Ezekiel 1, the beginning of, you know, Ezekiel's ministry, uh, he was in captivity and he saw a vision. A lot of, you know, people attribute that to the time when he was supposed to be start serving in the altar, but instead of serving in the altar, since he was in captivity and he couldn't serve, God gave him that vision. It was seen on earth uh, out of a strong wind and four creatures, each with four faces, not one face, but he, each creature had four, the four different faces. There were wheels. The throne was above the cherub, you know, the cherubim or four creatures. And he described the person sitting on the throne as, you know, appearance of a man on the throne. And the throne was surrounded by fire and rainbow. We go to Ezekiel 10, that's the second vision. It was seen from earth in the, in the, in the heavens, the firmament. Again, here he says the cherubs, or the four creatures, were carrying the throne. And the throne was above the, the, cherub, the cherubs, or the four cherubim. The man, the one on the throne, was a man wearing linen. Again, when Christ appears in the Old Testament, wearing linen, this is a sign you know, of the priesthood, sign of his you know, uh, job as an archpriest. And there was burning coal under the throne. And this is the famous story where he says, you know, my tongue, uh, you know, uh, that the Sherub takes one of the coals and cleans, cleans his uh, tongue with it. Isaiah 6, a little bit different. He sees the, the throne of God above, you know, in the temple in Jerusalem. He sees the seraphim each with six wings above the throne. Right? So the, the cherubim are under the throne and the seraphim are above the throne, surrounding the throne. They're still crying, Holy, Holy, Holy is Jehovah of hosts. But he didn't describe how the Lord looked like. He only described the throne. We jump to Daniel 7. Here the Lord on his throne and surrounded by other thrones. This is the, you know, the only mention here in Daniel about the other thrones, which a lot of the fathers say that this is a description of the 24, this, the 24 thrones of the 24 priests surrounding the throne of the Lord, as we saw in uh, Revelation 4. 
Here Christ is described as ancient of days. There's a stream of fire out of the throne and thousands and thousands of angels surround the throne. That was Daniel, I think, 9 and 10. This chapter, Revelation 4, it's seen in heaven, not on earth. So it's this is the different view. Now, St. John goes up to heaven to see the throne itself, not seen from earth. So he sees a little bit different set of details. He still sees the four heavenly creatures under the throne. Here, no wheels mentioned, because the wheels... And the, you know, in the Old Testament, uh, the throne of God represents God's will and intentions. In heaven, they're already established. Here on earth, there's still God's will and intentions are not established. So that's why there still seems to be like emotion in what he's saying. He could not describe the one sitting on the throne. We saw in Ezekiel, he was able to describe Ezekiel was able to describe the one sitting on the throne. So is Daniel. They described him as a man. But when uh, St. John saw God's glory in heaven, he couldn't describe it. Okay. Uh, surrounded by the 24 priests, relates to what Daniel saw as, you know, not just God's throne, but thrones were set in heaven, and surrounded by a rainbow. Okay, So that's a quick comparison of the various visions that were seen about the throne of God. And last time, I think we stopped at verse 6, and I saw uh, and a sea of glass was in front of the throne like crystal, and we talked that this represents the baptism that brings us, as the Father said, that this comes out of the, from God to the basin of baptism, to get us, you know, back so we can walk. We're going to see later on, I think, in chapter 15, that we we walk on, you know, he saw the victorious church walking on this sea of glass. So we walk to Christ on this, you know, through this baptism. Now, let's get into more details about the four living creatures. Right? Here the description of the four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind, and the first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had a face of a man, and the fourth living creature like a flying eagle. And each one of the four living creatures had six wings about him, and within being full of eyes, and they had no rest day and night, saying, Holy, Holy, Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So what are these four creatures? The other person who saw these creatures is who, by the way? And describe them. I just said that a minute ago. Who is the other prophet? Oh, Ezekiel. Ezekiel. Ezekiel was the other prophet who saw the four creatures and he was able to describe them as well. So who are they? They are in the midst and around the throne. So what does that mean? Can they be in the middle and around and under at the same time? 
if you only discard four. Again, don't forget that St. John is describing something heavenly using earthly terms. It just, you know, represents they are surrounding God from all over the place. Right? In Ezekiel 10.1, we know their names or we know their rank, they are Shirubs. Right? And I looked and behold in the expanse over the head of, of the Shirubs was seen the appearance of the form like the throne and the sapphire stone above them. God sits on them means God rests in them. You can expand a little bit. You sit in a place where you rest, which means God finds comforts in them, which means they are fulfilling all what God is asking them to do, and that's why God finds His rest there. Now, God is limitless, right? He doesn't sit in any place. He doesn't have, you know, particular seat to sit on. But He, through this vision, gave us the, you know, impression that there's a throne and He sits there. Again, some of the fathers say that this is just, you know, so the, the cherubs can be around Him. They can have a place to be around Him. Same way He came here on earth, so we'd know Him, you know, we learn from Him and so on. And of course, the main purpose of the incarnation was salvation, but also to be with us and to walk with us. Same thing when God was, you know, talking to Adam and Eve. When he created Adam and Eve, he was always walking in the Garden of Eden with them. So they say that also that he has the the throne there so the cherubs can be around him. And the church has a special feast for these four creatures. We know that the, the Sherobim are full of knowledge. The Seraphim are full of love. Right? And we're going to talk about a little bit of that later on. Right? So what do they look like? Isaiah saw... I'm sorry, Ezekiel, uh, yeah, Ezekiel saw four faces for each Sherub. He didn't see one. He saw four faces for each one. St. John saw only one face for every creature. Each have six wings, and the wings are covered with eyes from the inside and from the outside. Okay. So what do they stand for? There are different interpretations for this and different meditations. All of them are right, because they can stand for multiple things. The first one is the four Gospels. In this one we see there are two types, or there are many ways of building the churches. One of them is to have twelve columns representing the twelve disciples one of them the other way is to have four big columns that carry the whole church and like representing the four gospels so what they do they draw on the top of each of these columns you know the gospel writer and they do one of those faces next to him so St. Matthew is the a man because he talked about the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ a lot, and he's actually he starts by genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Saint Mark, as you all know, is famous with the lion because he starts by uh, a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, and he talks about this, you know, the power and the strength 
of the Lord Jesus Christ since this gospel was written to the Romans uh, it's talking more about uh, God's miracle and strength and it ends by promising you know those who believe in you know in, in Christ can do more miracles as these and actually more St. Luke is the calf because it talks about Christ as a sacrifice it starts also by Zechariah the priest and he's in the you know in the temple offering uh, raising incense and the whole idea of priesthood uh, and the sacrifice of the Lord is in the gospel of Saint Luke and of course we all know Saint John wrote his gospel to the Christians and he's talking a lot about the divinity of Christ and since the eagle flies way up high the divinity is always represented by an eagle so these can be one interpretation the four Gospels. So if we look at this interpretation, what does it mean? That the, through the Gospel, I can know Christ, I can know what Christ have done for different aspects of Christ, and I can become God's throne. Okay, So God can dwell in me, and He can comes and find comfort in you know my heart, and sits there, and comes and have dinner, as He promised. Right? The other interpretation, second one is, you know, Christ's redeeming act of salvation. So the, the face of a man is the incarnation. Christ becoming a man. The lion, actually we should look at it in order. The man is the incarnation. The calf is the crucifixion. Right? Because the calf was always offered as a sacrifice. The lion, the strength, the power, the resurrection, you know, Aslan, you guys saw the, the movie. And then Ascension is the eagle, because again that goes up to the heaven. Okay. Right. It can also stand, so again, how can we relate this? Again, through Christ's acts of salvation, through his incarnation, through his crucifixion, through his resurrection, through his ascension. I get to know him, I get to benefit, I get to become close to him, I get to be able to witness his glory and become a place where he comes and rests. As you notice, we're always focusing on what is the benefit for me. If I don't benefit from each of these things, God wouldn't do the dimensions. Now, it stands for you and I. So it stands for any human being. It stands the man can stand for the mental abilities, and we can look at you know what Saint Paul, what Saint Paul said in Second Corinthians. You know, taking every thought captive in order to obey Christ. So my thoughts, my intellectual abilities, if I take it and offer it to Christ and make it uh, as a sacrifice to God, or control it for God's sake and employ it to serve God, that's one aspect. My emotional strength and my body, I can offer it as a sacrifice as well. And we can remember, if, you know, one of the verses we used before, again, St. Paul saying, I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. So that's why we can become like the calf, offering ourselves, our bodies as a sacrifice. The lion is our 
physical strength. So everything I do, all my actions, all my strength, God give me an ability as a young man and a young woman to serve Him and serve others. I use the strength instead of, you know, just lifting weight and going to the gym for no purpose. That's okay. I go to the gym and, you know, lift weight and do all that and then come back and be able to serve God with my ability, visiting people, standing up in prayer, uh, you know, cleaning the church, helping others by my physical strength that God gave to me. And the eagle, the spiritual capabilities and my uh, uh, spirit serving the Lord and being captive to the Lord. So I put, you put the four of them together, the four faces together, or the four aspects together. So as a human being, I can put all my energies, all my capabilities, all my energies together to serve God and make it as an offering to God. Then God can become and lives in me. And if you notice, there's nothing here that's outside the picture. So I can't offer my, myself to God, but I leave my body outside the picture. Or I leave my thought outside the picture. I can come to church, I can stand up for prayer, I can do whatever, by, but you know, I can leave my thoughts somewhere else. I cannot do that. Me as a complete person with all aspects of my life, my thoughts, my emotions, have to be all together offered as sacrifice to God and, you know, concentrated and focused solely on God and consecrated to God so He can come again and become His throne and become a place for God to feel comfortable to come and rest. Not that He comes to sit down and then He finds this sin sticking from this way and, you know, this bad thought coming in and, you know, disturbing Him and, like, you know, a fly or whatever, so He ends up not sitting there. Another thought the fathers had as acts of intercession. So the face of a man intercedes on behalf of man. The face of the lion intercedes on behalf of the wild beast. The face of the calf intercedes on behalf of the domestic beasts. And the face of the eagle on behalf of the birds. Then there's no one intercedes on behalf of the, you know, the snake and the reptiles basically. Because from them came the snake that deceived Adam and Eve. That's another... You know. I'm sorry? No, nothing for the insects either. They're God's creation. God cares about them. They're... No, I mean, there's a whole psalm, don't forget what David the prophet had a whole psalm, you know, and now Tazbeha, we repeat that as well. Praise God, all the animals, praise God, all the wind, praise God. They praise God. Even they praise God by simply following the natural law and not trying to change it. Do you think we as human, you know, praise God by changing the natural way of doing things, whether it's, you know, in our thoughts, in our aspects, people are trying to change the way that people marry and redefine marriage, people are trying to, you know, to change the way, you know, re, you know reproductive system works, you know, genetic engineering, and a lot of these things, they think that's fulfilling God's will. So let me event. So these are...
different ways the father saw the, the four heavenly creatures and their meaning. Now the question is, am I God's throne? Is my life is tailored to be God's throne or is my life, you know, busy doing everything else and I'm not being uh, a proper throne for God? That's the question to ask ourselves and, you know, we should, if we concentrate on this third meaning for me, uh, which one of these I have not made to serve God, I have not consecrated yet to serve God, which part of this is not consecrated yet? We are, each one of each one of us will have something different. One of us will have his body busy with you know again doing something else, enjoying you know our our body, enjoying our physical needs. Somebody else is you know using their spiritual capabilities to seek something else other than God. Others are using their emotional strength and you know something different, not loving God but you know worried about loving everybody else and you know first love and puppy love and all this kind of love but forgetting the focus of our life which is you know loving Christ himself so we should ask ourselves which one I haven't consecrated for God yet and focus on that one so the wings what do the wings stand for uh, there are three pairs they stand for speed you know uh, if you go back to Daniel prophecies when uh, the Daniel saw the visions of the various beasts and when God wanted to describe uh, the Greek Empire and the way Alexander the Great conquered the whole world. He described this animal having four wings because he was very fast. You have more wings, you can fly faster, you can cover more ground faster. So six, six wings stands for they're very fast and very willing to execute God's commandments. The first pair to cover their faces, so... Even the heavenly who are in God's presence all the time, who are used to see God all the time, they still cannot stand and look at God face to face. That's why when it's time for the, you know, the priest to consecrate the body and the wine, what does the deacon, you know, cry and tell, you know, people to do? When the Holy Spirit is, you know, going to descend to, to transform the urbana into God's body and the wine too, bow down in fear and tremblers because the Holy Spirit is descending right now so we should bow down and you know worship God in fear and tremblers the second pair covered their feet out of respect to God so when we come to church we can we need to be a little bit more respectful and cover ourselves the third pair is to fly with which means execute God's will why they're full of eyes from the inside and from the outside? We only have two eyes and we can see that much. Imagine if you have two eyes in the front, two eyes in the back, two eyes on the right, two eyes on the left, two eyes in the, you know, up, two eyes down. You'll be able to see a lot more, you'll be able to cover a lot more, you'll be able to understand a lot more. That is if your brain can, cap, you know, assimilate all this information that you are uh, getting. But the more eyes you have, the more knowledge you will get. So these, you know, heavenly creatures are very knowledgeable. And they're still worshipping God. When one of us becomes knowledgeable, what, what do we do? 
say it. Everything comes from me. God doesn't give me anything. I'm the one smart one who comes up with these ideas. See? My ideas are great. It's not God, no. But these creatures, they're knowledgeable. They still worship God and they still serve God. So when... Yes? By the way, I'm glad you remind me. Uh, I have, we got like, you know, 20, 25 copies of Abinat Tedros' book. It's up in the bookstore. So whenever you want, just go grab one. Uh, When was the first time we heard about the Cherubims? Garden of Eden. Uh, When man was exiled, God put a Cherub to guard the Garden of Eden. So does that mean they hate man? They are our enemies? No, we're going to find out later on in their, you know, uh, prayer and you know, glorification of God. They praise God on His creation, right? So. Yes. This is number two. Let's go ahead, No, 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 but. بس أبشر أتسحب من حاجة تانية غير هنا بس. the verse that's covered is where the Lord Jesus Covered with blood, it was. So, in a sense, they were a reminder of that, not just God and His one, but God's salvation plan. So, they served, you know, a role from the beginning. They still also had the face of a man, and as Abuna said, they still reminded people in the mercy seat of the role or not the role of God's you know uh, plan of salvation and you know his mercy does anybody know why it was called the mercy seat this is the cover of the ark of covenant quiz time five points belash dollar if you don't know it before you're not going to know find it now now again, uh, again mercy seat because when this was came from the Septagonian, you know, translation when they the cover of the Ark of Covenant when they thought about what it means was these two uh, cherubs pointing to each other. There was no other meaning other than the mercy, you know, uh, mercy seat because first it covered the Ark of Covenant where. The content there represented Christ, the man, and you know, 
the iron stake that and the tablet the Ten Commandments right? and at the same time Zabuna said the priest the arch priest used to go in the high priest used to go in once a year was an offering sacrifice and cover that you know Ark of Covenant or the mercy seat was blood as a sign of the salvation that's going to happen so was the presence of God's you know glory the Shekinah and those two cherubs guarding and present there the only meaning that the uh, the fathers found for this cover was that this is the mercy seat where God's mercy appears in his relationship to us in the regular English in the Arabic الترجمة السبعينية مش بنخدم الترجمة السبعينية اللي هو المرسي سيت Sherubic uh, cover, but the meaning when they, you know, when they wanted to translate that, there was no, you know, they couldn't translate it just Sherubic cover. It wouldn't make sense for Gentiles or whoever reads it. The, the the one meaning they found, and if you look at it, it describes, you know, its function is, you know, again, mercy seat. The other thing that we know about the Sherubs is that if we go to Ezekiel twenty-eight fourteen. We find that the devil was one of the cherubims. Let's go there and read that a little bit because I know that's interesting. There are two two places where the story of the devil is mentioned, and it's mentioned in a in a very hidden way, um, not very hidden, but in a concealed way. Because again, the purpose of the gospel is to let us know about our salvation, not about other creatures. So, for example, when God talked in Genesis about the creation of the heaven and heavenly host, and God created the heavens, that includes everything. Because the details there are not going to impact us. If we go to Ezekiel 28, uh, and let's read from uh, verse 12, who's going to read for us? Your turn, Joe. Son of man, lift up a, a lament over the king of Tyre and say to him, So says the Lord Jehovah, you seal the measure, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You have been in Eden, in the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering the ruby, topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the sapphire, the turquoise, and the emerald, and gold. The workmanship of your tambourines and of your flutes was, pre- was prepared in you in the day that you were created. You were the anointed cherub that covers, and I had put you in the holy height of God where you were made, where you were. You have walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. You were perfect in your ways from the day that you were created until iniquity was found in you. By the multitude of your goods, they have filled your midst with violence, and you have sinned. So I cast you profaned from the height of God, and I destroy you, O covering... O covering cherub from among the stones of fire. 
Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You have spoiled your wisdom because of your, bright, your brightness. I will cast you to the ground. I will put you before kings that they may behold you. By the host of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your trade, you have profaned your holy places. So I brought a fire from your midst. It shall devour you, and I will give you for ashes on the earth before the eyes of all who see you. That's, that's enough. So here the fathers noticed something very interesting. We go back to the first verse, which is, you know, uh, yeah, the king of Tyre. This Tyre was one of the cities around uh, Jerusalem that were in uh, war with God's people. But again, uh, even if we go back from uh, verse 2, Son of Man say to the ruler of Tyre, so says the Lord uh, Jehovah, because your heart is lifted up and you have said, I am a God. I sit in the seed of God in the midst of the seas. Yet you are a man and not God. Thou you set your heart as the heart of God. This is the basic sin of uh, the devil. And we see here that the discussion comes in. He starts talking about the, this king. And then little bit by little bit he start talking about uh, um, yeah start from verse 12 start describing somebody who is of extreme beauty who was in the garden of Eden and if you think about it the king of you know Tyre who was a human he was living here on earth he was never in the Garden of Eden. First he says ruler, then he says king. So ruler would be the one on earth, king is the one that they Yes. Follow. Yes. And you're going to notice a lot in the prophecies. The discussion starts describing a person and then moves on to describe someone else. Here and in Isaiah 14, the description starts describing a human being and then moves on to describe the devil. In other prophecies, start describing a human being and then moves on to describe the Antichrist that's going to come later on. So the fathers look at this and they say that this was a cherub that was created and he was full of beauty. But then he put in his heart the same sin as the king of you know, Tyre that I sit in the seed of God. I am a God, I sit in the seed of God. And that's why the father said that the cherubs are full of knowledge. The seraphim are full of love. That's why when we hear about those rank of angels that fell, all the ranks of angels, some of them fell. Except the seraphim, none of them fell because they're full of love. So we can have a lot of knowledge, but if we don't have love to Christ, we can fall. So even if we take the Bible study, even if we take anything we do as pure knowledge, just to entertain our minds, just to make ourselves a little bit smarter and more capable of, you know, understanding things, this is great. But if we stop at that point, we, we waste our time and we put ourselves into a problem. It doesn't mean that we don't seek knowledge. That's Murad al-Kidab and we don't come to Bible study anymore. Here's an excuse. Let's not learn. Close the books and that's it. We don't want to learn. Otherwise, we're going to become like the devil. That's not an excuse. Right? Uh, 
my people, you know, perish from lack of knowledge. If if we do, if we keep it as knowledge, yeah. we're we're in trouble, or we can be in trouble. Yeah. And you know something else that when we were studying with uh, Abu Athanasius and we were talking about the people who do PhDs in, in theology and so on, and he gave us an article, but by one of the Greek bishops, modern Greek bishops, talking about who should study theology and and so on, and this you know bishop saying basically that. Really, a theologian must be a spiritual person, must be a person who really living a spiritual life before he starts meditating about theology and understanding theology and interpreting theology. Unfortunately, we have a lot of people who go use theology as just a subject to study, open books, read it, without living spiritual life. Uh, somebody was just talking about going to school and studying, you know, taking a course about. New Testament from a person who may be misquoting the scripture and, you know, misrepresenting the scripture, misrepresenting a lot of facts about, you know, God, about the Bible, because their life may not be a good Christian life. So how can they understand what the scripture is talking about? So knowledge is great, but knowledge is the first step for us to get into, live a spiritual life and translate that knowledge into life. Otherwise, we're not going to be anywhere. Right? So, do you all understand who the cherubims are, who these four creatures are? Right. And they had no rest day and night, saying, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty, who is and who was and is and is to come. No rest day and night. Holy, holy, holy. Is really saying, you know, praising God all the time, not uh, tiring. All what you do in church, you know, praises from night, you know, midnight praise, well, vespers, why can't midnight praise, why can't morning vespers, why can't why can't the cycle again for next day? And is this tiring or is it not tiring as these? Poor creatures are doing, praising God day and night. Guys? There's no day and night in heaven. That's a very good point. Very good, you know, observation. There's no day and night in heaven. Well, let me ask you some other questions. These are heavenly creatures, right? These are spirits. Do spirits have bodies? Do we know what the shape of a spirit is? Does the spirit need wings? 
So what is also all this description that we have talked about so far? Exactly. To help human mind grasp the concepts. Angels don't really have, you know, wings. We don't know. They don't have, you know, flapping wings like that. I mean, I think the wings are a representation of their speed and quick action to fulfill God's commandment. So day and night, it's an expression to mean continuously praising God at all times, not necessarily when the sun rises and the sun sets, because we're going to find out later on at the end of Revelation, if God gives us life and live all that long, that in heaven there's no day and no night. Why? Because who's who's the sun? Christ is going to be our sun, and he never dims, he never disappears, right? So it's always going to be morning, you know, with with Christ. Uh, So this is just an expression. When we say, you know, Christ was in the tomb for three days and three nights, again, the, the expression three days and three, you know, day and night is an expression of a period. Even in Genesis? Genesis, that was the day. And yeah. Even before, before the sun was before the, the, the fourth, fourth day. day. So that's an expression. So what can we... So let's, let's finish this verse and get a couple of meditations. Holy, holy, holy. Again, the triple holiness. Uh, to emphasize uh, God is, you know, the Trinity. You know, here can describe the Trinity or can describe also that God is full of holiness. All the holiness is in, is in God. Um, the Almighty right, is capable of everything who was, is, and to come. We described that in chapter 1. Can somebody remind me? Was, is, and to come. What does that mean? Eternal, but can also stand for huh? unchanging. Yes, he is yesterday, today, and forever. But also stands for the Christ who came, right? And he is now, and he is to come again. He's his second coming, and right? so that can be glorifying uh, Christ Himself. Uh, couple of uh, observations. Again, when we look at these creatures, no matter what interpretation you take, as whether the four Gospels, whether they're, you know, God's acts of salvation, Christ's acts of salvation, whether they're, you know, you and I and our abilities and so on, any of these things, we need to meditate on them to really learn from them. As we just talked right now, these are spiritual creatures we don't know what the shape is. This is just an example for us to give us an ability to understand few things about God. Don't forget, St. John the Beloved was describing heavenly things without him being able to understand what are these things are. We can learn from them is that they're always praising God. And the church always uses this Praise day and you know day and night, holy, holy, holy. It's in everything we we say. Anaguna, as soon as you know, at the anaphora, the first thing he talks about God, he says, you know, agios, agios, agios. Same thing. Um, they cover their faces, so they you know worship God in fear and trembling. So we should also worship God in fear and trembling. They cover their legs. 
they they covered themselves out of respect and honor for God. So when we say, you know, this might be a little bit biased toward one side versus the other, but when we say we come to church wearing, you know, uh, modest clothes and, you know, covering ourselves, it's not because of anything fancy. It's because this is what heaven is teaching us to be dressed in front of God. So that's why, for example, when we don't let you know young people go into church with shorts and all that, nothing wrong about the shorts because God is outside and He sees them wearing shorts. Right? But when we come to his, in His presence and we feel we're coming in His presence, we have to show respect. So even the bodies have to show respect physically. That's why we don't cross our legs, we don't chew gums, we don't do any of these things. So the body can share in showing respect to God, not just the spirit. Because our attitude these days is, you know, what's the big deal? Why why should I, you know, what's what's the problem of wearing shorts to church? What's the problem of doing this in church? What's the problem of chewing gum? And there's nothing wrong with chewing gum. But you have to remember you are in God's presence. So you have to act a little bit differently. You have to dress a little bit differently. And you have to show respect. Even your body has to show respect, not just your emotions and your manners. A lot of the Christians, since Christ told them, you know, you do not, this generation does not end until uh, you see the kingdom of God. Some took that literally as his second coming is going to be coming, you know, soon with that generation. That generation, even in our uh, some of the churches, what St. Paul is serving, they thought that the second coming is coming soon. They sold everything and went to live in the churches. That's, a, you know, Paul talked to them about that and told them this is not the way. You know, the Thessalonians, I think, uh, first and second Thessalonians. St. Paul talks to them and tell them, look, this is not how it's going to happen. Right? I should go back, live a normal life, and when Christ is going to come, He's going to come. You know, so but. In a way, yes, they were under the impression, but they also knew, as St. Peter said, a day for the Lord is like a thousand years. So how did this impact uh, early Christian thinking when, when, it was, uh, when it was spread? I mean, I would imagine it, you wrote it down and then it circulated around the community. Not sure. Not sure what, you know, how I can answer that one. Christ comes, look what happens to those who are dead and those who are still alive and is 
the whole he discussed the content or the actual fracture, you know, how it's going to happen and so forth. Um, definitely, this left him with a lot of questions. You know, when you sometimes we left a lot of questions. It's God's mercy that we don't know everything. It's God's mercy that we all need. He gives us today what can we digest. If we know everything, we, we, I think we'll be much more troubled. Than, uh, so it, it, God's mercy can give us the kind of glimpses, like the, the glimpses of His glory, like the opening or the transfiguration or the resurrection. Like Moses, but I wanted to see God's mercy. He cannot handle that. I just put you in a cave, a cover over you, I pass by, and you just get a, just a little kind of snapshot. So I, this was more just like a snapshot of what uh, 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 yeah, the, uh, some of these what eschatological issues, you know, the things that are yet to be revealed, yet to be revealed. Uh, so it's, uh, it's good that we don't know all the answers. I think so something to and part part of the confusion, uh, what I'm saying is that led to, and as you were you know, sort of alluding, they were waiting for the end of the world. They, they ended up, for example, when they talked about the 666, their neuron was 666. Everybody you know, around at that time, they would give them the, the number, you know, count the, you know, the numbers, and if the 666, oh, that's, that's the Antichrist, and we're ready for the end of the world. But there's a lot of other symbols that are coming in uh, that we're going to see later on. And we don't know. So a lot of times these things are going to reappear. The wars and the news of wars and all these things are going to happen multiple times, not just once. So, so one of the things we have to do, we ca- be careful about when we're studying the book of Revelation or in prophecy, especially about what's going to happen. We cannot say that this is going to mean exactly A, B, C. Right? In this date and this date and this date and so on. Some people tried that. Even in our Coptic Orthodox Church, unfortunately, there were bishops who came up with books saying that the end of the world is October 2001. Okay? And they were asked, you know, Sayyidina, God said, you do not know the day of, you know, the hour. He said, yeah, I'm not saying the day or the hour, but I'm saying the month and the year. <laughs> Seriously, that's written in his book. So, and October, you know, 2001 passed. So we can't say that this is what happened or what's going to, you know, happen until it really happens. And at that, the reason we have the prophecies in our hand is that when it's going to happen, we're going to say this matches exactly. Go back to the beginning and the end of Revelation. Blessed are those who read and keep the words of this prophecy. Nothing about understanding. You're not supposed to understand this. Huh? So, also, it's okay. Also, were there a lot of other apocalyptic writing at the time? Like, there was, or this was a common thing at the time. So, like, they were spreading all over the churches anyway. No, the Romans were persecuting the church. So, this was a common thing. That's the question. Yeah, that's what I asked about. Don't they get bored? 
That's that's a very good question. And because the issue is in our church, we keep repeating the same hymns over and over again. We keep saying it and saying it and saying it, and the same liturgy, we keep saying it. No, but let me ask you the question. Let me ask you the question. When we uh, when we praise God, even with the same praise, is it going to be boring? I don't think so. The fathers tell us, for example, the arrow-like prayer. Lord, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. I'll tell you a small story that you read in, you know, in the. Uh, uh, the way of the pilgrim. There was this guy, you know, who wanted to know more about God and he wanted to understand a particular verse that St. Paul said, you know, pray always. And he didn't understand that. So he went to, you know, one of the elders told him, how can I understand this verse? I told him, you know, say it every day, you say it a hundred times. Lord have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. Lord have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. A hundred times. So he went and he kept counting every day for two weeks, counting one, Lord have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. Two, Lord have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. A hundred times. Then he went to his father, you know, to this elder again, said, All right, I said it a hundred times. Nothing happened. He said, well, say it five hundred times. One week, and then come back. Next time, told him two thousand times. Kept increasing the number. Till the number became so much that he couldn't just count. He had to say it always, always, always. And when he kept saying the same sentence always and always and always again, guess what happened? He never went back to the elder again because he understood what it means to pray always. In order to say, for example, 10,000 times a day, you have to say, even when you're talking to other people, you have to say it subconsciously that, you know, you're praying that all the time. And and even it ends up, even it's the same word repeated and repeated and repeated. If we say it as a prayer, it's not going to end up to be boring. Let's try it and see what's going to happen. Yeah, he just could not stop. Yeah, he just 
he finished what he, what he missed and then he kept on going. It's a thing that someone could, could reach. Uh, it doesn't come all of a sudden, by the way. It's not going to happen all of a sudden. Like, if, for example, this way of the pilgrim, when the elder gave you know, this person the exercise of praying, he didn't tell him to start with 2,000. Because spiritual growth requires a period of growth so you can achieve a certain level. Otherwise, if you try to jump all of a sudden, as high as you jump, you'd fall. If you grow, and in the guidance of your father of confession, you will be able to sustain this growth. Instead of just trying to fly by yourself and with no wings, end up falling. So try to meditate on God's word, because even repeating God's word is, in, you know, enjoyable by itself. And you know, it's it's an exercise for all of us. We all need to try it and taste it and see how you know whether it tastes good or not. The only way to try that is great. And I can get in here a very nice cake, put in front of you, and keep dipping and eating, and say, oh, this is delicious. And you guys are just watching. You wouldn't know whether I'm lying or, you know, or honest or, or anything, because I'm the only one who's eating. Unless you get a spoon and try from the same cake yourself, and taste it and find it's delicious, you're not going to know. So the only way for us to find out whether God's name, repeating God's name all the time is enjoyable or not, very simple. Try it. No, 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 that's true. That's true. Yes. And even, yeah, but not, but there's a difference between praying, wor- saying words and praying. Yes, do not repeat in vain. But if, you, if I'm going to just stand in front of God and read, you know, the whole Akbaya with my lips and not my heart, and my thought is somewhere else, and my body is doing something completely different, and just my lips are reading, that's not prayer. So that's repeating things in vain. What happens when you see a wonderful scene? You know, you go to the mountains or, you know, nice scene, lake, whatever, say, wow, amazing, right? Allah. You're praising God by saying that. Right? So, let's take it one step at a time. All right. So that was one long verse. <laughs> Uh, and whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sat on the throne who lives forever and ever the 24 elders fell down before the one sitting on the throne and they worshipped him who lives forever and ever and threw the crowns before the throne saying O Lord you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you created all things and And for your will, 
they are and were created. So the heavenly are praising God for his will, for his creation, and for he created everyone. Right? And again, that's what we learned from them. And if we go back here, we say, we find it's like a, a circle. And what happens? You know, the priest prays about one thing, the deacons tell us, pray for this, and the you know, congregation says, you know, for example, Lord have mercy, or they pray for the same thing. It's the same circle. The four creatures are saying, holy, holy, holy. The 24 elders worship. So even the Bible is teaching us to worship, to bow down, to kneel down in front of God and worship. So what we do in our Coptic church is not old-fashioned. It's heavenly fashion. Yes, sir. Why did they throw down their crowns? And what are their crowns? That's because you missed two times before. <laughs> I was just kidding. I didn't <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, these, the, this is a rank. These are 24 people, not people, 24 creatures that represents, 12 represents the, old, the Church of the Old Testament and 12 represents the Church of the New Testament. They have a special rank that God, you know, give them honor and glory to be, have thrones around him and they were wearing crowns. And we said that's why the priest in our church where Talasana to present you know a crown similar to these crowns and you find that you know the bishops the priests the you know the, the the patriarch when they read the gospel they take out their crowns right for example Abuna when he's wearing the royal you know robe he takes off the Talasana because he's reading the gospel God you know God Talasana <laughs> The, the sting, the... The headgear. Abuna's helmet. So, uh, Abuna takes that off when he's reading, you know, the gospel. So is that why, but why do they throw it? Because no, no, it's not a bad translation. Okay. Here's the idea: no matter what kind of honor and glory God gives oh, you, they're casting off their glory, they're casting off their glory in front of God's glory. But they take it and put it down at you know, God's feet because, again, God, and here's what happens between God and His saints. God gives glory to the saints. So what do the saints do? Do they take the glory for themselves? No. They go back and attribute the glory for God. What happens with us, God gives us talents. We take these talents from God and attribute it to ourselves. This God doesn't give us any more because He knows if He gives us more, we're going to become more and more egotistic and you know end up to be fallen right. is, let's look at some uh, comparison of the church here on earth and heaven okay so we're going to go through this one by one a little bit so we can t- you can understand and know that what we do in our Coptic church is not haphazard Right? It's not a just a bunch of you know people sat down together 2,000 years ago, came up with a few things, and we're just following that blindly. 
No, everything we have in our church comes strictly from the Bible. And the concept of our church is that if you really understand the Bible and walk to our church, you will know that you're in heaven. And the other way around, if you used to be in the church and you go to up to heaven, you'll feel home. Right? So let's see what we have. In heaven there is a throne and the Lord is sitting on the throne. In the church there is an altar and on the altar there is a cross and there is the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Seven lamp represents the Holy Spirit in front of the throne. Seven sacraments through which the Holy Spirit works in us and this also we said that the Holy Spirit is present in the church and the number seven represents its complete action in the church. Right? Not just the sacraments but everything else. A sea of glass and fire in front of the throne baptism uh, you know that leads to the throne 24 priests we don't have 24 priests in our church working on it but there's priests, bishops and you know the whole hierarchy of priesthood priests wearing white priests wearing white priests raising incense priests raising incense the four creatures carrying the throne the four gospels carrying the message of God and some churches you know like in our church we have the dome and we have the four creatures uh, in the dome continuous praise continuous praise uh, Sherub, you know Sherub covering their faces the priest you know covers the, his face you know some of the prayers and covers the hands you know uh, as you know the wings and, and so on during liturgy uh, there's lightning coming out of the throne and you know angels surrounding the throne candles and deacons surrounding surrounding the, the throne so again there's a, everything we have in the church has a meaning and has a purpose and it relates to the bible not just relates to tradition but also relates to the bible our you know tradition our tradition and the bible are very much entwined together let's look at the old testament temple ark of covenant presence of god in the throne, Ark of Covenant, uh, the brass sea for washing, where the you know the priests used to wash completely once when they're thirty, coming in to start the service, and then every time they go into service, they wash their hand and their feet, and that's when Christ, when Peter told God, you know, Christ washed me completely. He told me, them no, those who washed once only need to you know wash their you know their feet, because the priests used to wash completely once. And then every time they go to serve, they wash their hands and their feet. And actually, that's what the Muslim took for wudu before the prayer. They would wash their hands and feet, in the, you know, in the same way. Somebody once said that that specific uh, that verse where Jesus told them that if you wash once, you only wash your feet, was saying that they had already been baptized. No, if you're baptized, when you're baptized, you only need confession and repentance not re be baptized again. So when but were the disciples on the Somebody asked that question, that's how they answered them. I think so they were baptized the baptism of John. They were baptized the baptism of John. And, you know, they were even baptizing. If you remember, uh, before Christ uh, left, and I think went, uh, I forgot where he went, uh, Anyway, it's mentioned that uh, his disciples were baptizing, but he was not baptizing. 
Right? So there was baptism for uh, repentance, but it was not baptism for receiving the Holy Spirit. Only receiving the Holy, baptism for receiving the Holy Spirit, in the same meaning we understand right now, only happened after the Pentecost, because the Holy Spirit was not given before the Pentecost. Again, the priests in the Old Testament were wearing white altar of incense, you know, in the, end, in the beginning of the, the temple. Uh, two shirub on the seat of mercy, again, as we talked before, and continuous praises as well in the Old Testament. So, even in the Old Testament, when God told Moses to build the temple or build the tabernacle in the way he's going to show him, maybe he showed him heaven. And that's how... Moses built the tabernacle. And in the New Testament, our church is built to resemble heaven. Okay, and the servants, you really have to get and understand this. And when you teach your, you know, the youth or the kids you're, you know, you're serving, this is the understanding that you have to carry. And hopefully as parents in the future, you also have to carry the same thing as, you know, to your kids. When they come to church, they're coming in, in God's presence. Okay, so we're done with chapter 4 this way. Okay, we have 10 minutes and we're going to start chapter 5. A quick introduction to chapter 5. We'll talk about here, still in heaven, St. John sees or notices a scroll or a book next to Christ. Uh, and this book is a mystery and then becomes it's sealed with seven seals and only one person in the whole universe is capable of opening that book which is Christ himself and then every, every each one of these seals when it's opened an event is going to happen and we're going to see something you know again some of it is prophecies some of it is events that are going to happen and we're going to try to explain that God's willing, you know, next time. Right. Any questions? This is a preview for, for next week. Okay, good. This was a lively discussion today, so hopefully it uh, continues to be lively and not one way. All right, thank you.